Lord, we're excited now to come to this final section of this incredible book. We think of how you have handed these words down. You have preserved them. These words, Lord, even through the pen of Moses himself, given not just in that day, but also to us here to benefit our faith, to strengthen us, to call us forward, to teach us who you are and what you expect and to remind us who we are and what we need in our walk with you. Lord, we pray that our worship of you would grow as we study these final chapters, that we would understand and appreciate more fully all that Christ is for us and see that the, the shadows come to fulfillment in our Savior Jesus. Lead us now as we go through these verses, we pray, and, and, and open our eyes to see glorious and wonderful things in your law. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to begin uh, right there in chapter 25 with verses uh, 1 through 9. And it's on the tabernacle. So what's interesting is just the, the, the overarching nature of this very first section. Let me just read these verses. You could see in these the purpose, the pattern, and then the, the call really of participation of God's people as it relates to this tabernacle that God is bringing to them. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. That's an interesting thing. Might underline that as you read. Whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linens, goat's hair, and tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the oil, uh, the anointing oil, and for the fragrance, uh, fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Okay, so a few things happening here in these verses. First of all, the purpose of this tabernacle is uh, summed up in this, that, that I, the Lord says, may dwell in the midst of my people. And not only in their midst, but at the center of the camp, the, at the focal point of every time that we camp is going to be the very presence of God, but not in some unambiguous uh, piece of land. This is going to be marked out, a land that is set aside and made holy and then prepared with a special tent, a tabernacle for the Lord's presence to dwell. A holy place for a holy God. How is it that they are to relate with this God? They come with sin-stained hands. In fact, the, the grumble is still on their ears. They have already proven themselves uh, falling short. They are not worthy to be able to just walk into his presence. So how are they then to worship this God and not be consumed? There have been very real 
uh, tremblings in fear and awe as the mountain has shook. And they heard the voice of the Lord and it scared them to death. How are they to ever approach this, this God and worship and not die? Well, this is the tension. This is the dynamic. And this is the need then for this sanctuary, this, this tent for the Lord's uh, presence to, to dwell in. And all of the aspects of worship and, and spelled out with great detail of what it's going to look like then for them to enter into his presence and worship appropriately a holy God as a sinful people. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. Now this word pattern, if you've been in Tom's class, you realize uh, as we're going through Hebrews how significant this is. The pattern of the tabernacle, according to Hebrews chapter 9, is patterned out of the heavens. The actual dwelling place of God. The throne room of the God who is, is given kind of a, an earthly reflection. It's patterned. And so the, the, the tabernacle itself is to call our attention to the God who dwells in the heavens, uh, who no house can contain. But it is to point to something, to something more real, something fuller than just a tent. So you shall make it. Interesting as well that they are called to participate. God could have just made it himself. G God could do this. And he could do it perfectly. But he is calling the people to participate with him. To give out of their own goods. And then to use their skills that he has given them to do this work on his behalf. So he has a pattern. And they are called to perform this work. Hebrews chapter 8 says that the tabernacle served to be a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Incredible. Now, on the back of your sermon notes, I gave you a little cheat sheet here because there are so many parts to this tabernacle and so many descriptions given that you've got to kind of see as this unfolds. So this is on the back of your sermon notes, and what we're going to do is we're going to kind of go through piece by piece today and see some of these different elements. Now, we're not going to cover every single thing because we're, we're looking at the priests here in a few weeks, and there's a few other items that are not uh, explicitly called out in this passage, but we'll eventually see those as well as we go. So you can flip back and forth as I'm reading, listen in, uh, look on the screen, and then look also on the back of your sermon notes. It will, I think, be helpful to see these things as they un unfold. It struck me in Hebrews class, as Tom was describing some of these things, that the contributions that are given are, are, are God-supplied gifts. One of the things we always say when, when, when we uh, do the offering on Sunday mornings is that we receive the offering. We don't take the offering. We receive the offering. We, we receive it as uh, joyfully given from God's people out of the abundance of His supply, right? He gives to us, and we joyfully then, as He stirs in our hearts, not under compulsion, right? We give back to Him a portion of what's already His, What's amazing about this is that it wasn't all along, that long ago that these very precious elements that they are giving in worship of the Lord were employed by the Egyptians 
in the pantheon of worship of their gods, right? This is Egyptian treasure that God lavishly loaded up his people with on the way out. And they've carried all these things. They are extremely wealthy as a people. And they give, they actually give more than is needed to this. God stirs their hearts and they give out of abundance these precious things, gold and silver, and acacia wood and fine uh, linens and all kinds of different things, precious stones and all of the building materials that were needed given joyfully and willingly out of the gifts of a good and lavish God. Incredible. Now, let's begin by looking at the Ark of the Covenant. It's fascinating that this is where it begins because this is at the very center, the very core of uh, all that's going to be described. But if you think about it, it's the perfect place to begin. So, I'll put this up on the screen. This is a, an artistic rendering. I have issues with a couple things that are wrong on this that I'll point out as we go. You see if you can catch what's wrong with this picture as I read. They shall make an Ark of Acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it. Uh, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two. Two rings on one side and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put the, uh, into, the, you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece of the mercy seat, uh, of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another that toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There, there I will meet with you. From above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all the things I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Okay, so there's a description of the Ark of the Covenant. Why do we call it that? It is the Ark. The Ark. It's a, it's a storage container, but, but so sacred, made of pure gold, overlaid inside and out, and the top is completely solid gold. We're talking a treasure of treasures. The reason why I have a problem with this picture is because it was so sacred that it should not sit on the ground. It needed four feet. That it, only the bottoms of the feet, think clawfoot tub maybe or something, right? The, just the bottoms of the feet should touch the ground, not the box itself. And on the feet 
the poles go. So they would have been down near the ground to, to not interrupt the view of that be uh, beautiful face of the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the tablets or the testimony. And it's important to remember, why are there two? Well, we tend to think God needed space, right? He chose too big of a font, right? He couldn't fit all the Ten Commandments on one, so he, he went one through four on one and maybe five through ten on the other to split the, you know, the first four as the Lord and then love others. That's not it. Two tablets, one represented God's side of the equation, the other represented his people. And the covenant is that they have both agreed to the terms, and the testimony is placed in the Ark of the Covenant to be a witness against either one should they break their agreement to that testimony. There are two other items that are referred to as being within the box or at least uh, on or in front of the box. What were they? Anybody remember? The golden bowl filled with the manna and then Aaron's rod or staff that budded. Now, this is a small box, so unless Aaron was Yoda-sized and his staff was even shorter, it was probably uh, kept outside or in front as a, a visible reminder of God's overwhelming power to save and to provide, right, with the manna. Um, or they maybe cut the, the, the staff to put the top that budded inside. Uh, either way, it was a constant reminder of the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant that was made, the Mosaic Covenant. Precious, a precious piece. The item of greatest importance is where it all begins. It's the focus of the whole tabernacle. Store the testimony and the mercy seat then is to serve as God's footstool. You remember uh, the psalm, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. It's as if God says, I'm not going to sit on the mercy seat. I am going to allow my presence to be there over the top of that mercy seat where once a year the blood of the sacrifice would be sprinkled on that mercy seat to anticipate the sacrifice that God would send in Christ that would atone for all the sin of his elect those who have placed their faith in him. Wow. The atonement cover is another word for that pure gold cover for that. Okay, we're clear. Is that making sense? Uh, there's all kinds of fun things to try to understand. What did the cherubim look like? How would he have known? And historians dis disagree and differ uh, about you know, what they actually look like. Uh, some think they were more lion-like with a human head. Uh, others think that they were more kind of human uh, with wings type of thing. Here's what they were not. Little fat cherubs, okay? You know, shooting little hearts. These were fearsome cherubim, the kind who are, not the kind that Hallmark imagines. Let's keep going. The table for bread, verse, verse 23. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length. It's uh, a cubit, its breadth. A cubit, its and a half, its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, uh, a hand breadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. 
You shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings at the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. You shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls which to pour drink offerings, and you shall make them of pure gold. Everything is pure gold here. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Okay. Note the details of this. Note the very intricate, specific instructions that God is giving for this piece of furniture. It matters. And yet, he is giving these instructions with great specificity and then giving them to craftsmen who can take and make them in glorious detail. So, I just love this twofold work. God describes with great detail and care the dimensions and the way it's going to, and this molding and that, but then the craftsmen bring their skill to do it and to make it in pleasing the Lord, using their gifts. Acacia wood, just a note on that, very abundant in this area. It was extremely strong and extremely durable. And so these poles would have been very uh, strong and sturdy, and they would have lasted. The poles on this table were probably removed. The poles on the ark were not to be removed because of the wear and tear. It was too holy for the pulling of those poles back and forth. Maybe it would scuff or scratch over time. They didn't want that, and so those poles were to stay. Now the golden lampstand, verse 31. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, its flowers shall be one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides. Three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, three branches of the lampstand out on the other side of it. Three cups made to look like almond blossoms. Here, let me see the, show this to you. This is a really great rendition of this that is being described here. Verse 33, three cups made like almond blossoms, each with its calyx and flower and on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with its uh, calyx and flower on the other branch, so that the six branches are going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups. Count them. One, two, three, four. Perfect. Uh, made to look like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers and the calyx of one piece with it under each pair of six branches going out. See how they did that? They're right underneath the branches that go out. Perfect. The whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up as to give, so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all of these utensils out of a talent, or 75 pounds, of pure gold. See to it that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown to you on the mountain. And so we have the lampstand. Or uh, the menorah. This is where the pattern is given of the lampstand. This is one piece of hammered, pure gold. It's unbelievably skilled. The, the, the required craftsman skill would have been incredible 
to make this out of one piece, 75 pounds. Have you ever felt something gold, that the weight of gold? It's, it's significant, isn't it? Consider what it would be like to transport some of these items around uh, with great care, again. Now, the curtains and the tent. This is a long one, so follow along, and uh, if need be, reference this picture on the screen. Chapter 26, verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen, blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them uh, with cherubim skillfully worked into them. Ooh, this is awesome. Don't miss that. So that the curtains themselves have cherubim skillfully worked into them as they are. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits. The breadth of each cur uh, curtain, four cubits. And the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one, uh, to one another. You shall make loops of, of gold, uh, of blue, on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain on, in the second set. So, I mean, just, it's kind of hard to read this, let alone to see this. But the Lord, in his goodness, with all of this detail, brought this instruction and then they studied this and they carefully then put it to work to build exactly what God had described in this way. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another and you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains together uh, with the other clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains you shall make. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits. The breadth of each curtain shall be four cubits. The eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And the sixth curtain you shall double over in the, at the front of the tent. You see how it's kind of doubled over in the front there. Verse 10, you shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is the outermost in the one set, and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is the outermost in the second set. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze and put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. You see the, how the elements begin to change as you move out, outward. We're moving from gold now to bronze. So the closer you move into this tabernacle, the, the closer you arrive then to that holy of holies, the more precious the elements inside. Uh, verse 12, the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on this one side, the cubit on the other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on the side that is on this side and that side to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skin on top. So multiple layers given to cover this tent. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame and a cubit and a half breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So you shall do for all the frames of the tabernacle. 
You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, 20 frames for the south side, 40 bases of silver you shall make under the 20 frames, two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, 20 frames, and there are 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, two bases under the next frame. Do you see the, the level of detail here? God is not leaving anything unspoken when it comes to how exactly they are to put this tent together. For the rear of the tabernacle, westward you shall make six frames, and you shall make two frames for the corners of the tabernacle in the rear. They shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top, at the first ring. Thus it shall be with both of them. They shall form the two corners. And there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle, five bars for the frames on the one side of the tabernacle at the, rest, at the rear westward. The middle bar halfway up uh, the frames shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold. And you shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars, and you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. Now, before I read on here, I want to show you how awesome God has just arranged our little sanctuary here. Okay, What direction are we facing right now? Anyone? Those directionally aware people? East. We're looking east. Mount Baker, right over here. Okay? We're looking east. Perfect. Guess which way the front of the tabernacle was to face? Eastward. Okay. So from right about here to the front of the soundboard is 45 feet. I have my tape out this week. I measured this all out for us. Okay. That's the length of the tabernacle all the way. Front wall to back wall. 45 feet. Guess how wide it is? Center section. 15 feet. Nine chairs. Perfect, right? Okay, so that's the width of it. Does that help give you a kind of a sense for the size that we're talking about? This is a huge tent, but it's not like, you know, massive building, okay? We're thinking tent, big. Now, 15 feet tall is just to the bottom of these lights, so pretty tall. Most tents that you've been in aren't anywhere near this tall. It's good, though, because the, the candles are burning. You do not want to burn your tent down, okay? So there's plenty of distance for the uh, candelabra, the lampstand, to let those flames go up. Now, from the fifth row, one, two, three, four, five. So Jesse back is the Holy of Holies. It is a perfect cube, 15 by 15 by 15. So that would be the Holy of Holies. And Woody, right about where you are is where the Ark of the Covenant would sit right in there. And there would be a veil, a very significant veil right along the Soma row that would separate off the Holy of Holies from the holy area of the temple where the priests were allowed to work. Okay? God's presence in there, the priests in here, the people out here. Okay? So hopefully that helps. These words are are difficult to process and everything, but I want us to kind of put ourselves in this uh, experience. Verse 31. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen 
and it shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there with the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. Okay, the holy of holies. Here is what is amazing to me. I just learned this as I studied. And what jumped out to me is these cherubim that are woven into the curtains themselves. When you go into the Holy of Holies, the high priest, once a year, would have this experience. Not only would the Lord's presence be over that Ark of the Covenant, but he would have, as that candlelight would would flicker up on the curtains, he would have this experience of being surrounded by the cherubim. And this blue would almost give you the sense of the heavens. And so you feel like, though your earth are on the gr- your, your feet are planted on the ground, you would feel as if you had been transported into the very throne room of God, into His presence, in the heavenlies, with His angels enthroned, the Lord enthroned on the cherubim, as they say in the Psalms. Verse 35, You shall set the table outside the veil, and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle, opposite the table. You shall put the table on the north side, over here. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, embroidered and needlework. And you shall make for uh, the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. So right here, there would be five pillars of acacia wood. You can see two of them all the way up and then another couple there. One of them is is hidden in that picture. That would be uh, the entrance. And at night, those who uh, were bringing sacrifices were able to probably see into the holy area, but no one could see into the holy of holies. Okay, there it is. That is the tabernacle. That is the the instruction that was given and some of those different articles that were to be contained in it. Now, this is an interesting mix of, of, of items. The way the Lord has designed this and described it, you have this lavish, beautiful, and set apart collection of extremely precious materials, very craftfully put together according to the plan, but they are also extremely sturdy and well-built. This construction method could hold up to a good windstorm in the desert, right? It's not going to fall over. God designed this to be extremely sturdy, but also portable and built to last. Not like most mobile homes, okay? This is a, a, a very lavish, sturdy Mobile home. And no disrespect for the Lord, mobile in the sense that it's to be moved. And for the coming 40 years, that's what it's going to be. All over, as the Spirit of God led them in their wanderings in the Sinai. The Holy of Holies, I, I described that, surrounded by the cherubim. Now let's look at the bronze altar. Chapter 27, verse 1. You shall make... Uh, the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long, five cubits broad. The altar shall be a square. Its height shall be three cubits. 
and you shall make horns for it on the four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it all with bronze. Okay, so this is a bronze uh, altar. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on it, uh, let me show the picture here so you can see this. That's helpful. Uh, on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners, and you shall set under it uh, the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood. Overlay them with bronze. The poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards as it has been shown to you on the mountain so it shall be made. Here we have a bronze altar that represents for us the future atoning work of Christ, the one who would uh, be the fulfillment of all of the faith that those have placed in these sacrifices to cover their sins. An altar made of bronze. This, for us, is the cross. This is our focus as we come. And now the court of the tabernacle and kind of give you a picture here of where this is located. These doors, there's only one entrance, 30 feet wide right here. As you come through to present your sacrifice in this area, this is where the, the priest would offer your sacrifice. This is where your sacrifice would be slaughtered. It's not fun for me to think of this, but this is a very messy and sacrificial area. The, the amount of blood for instance, that would pour from these tables as these animals were killed. And then the smells that these uh, animals would have as they were burned before the Lord and offered in that way. Uh, one of the reasons that I think the incense is to be in the tabernacle is to help counteract the, the smells of the sacrifice that takes place outside. We have to put ourselves in that so that we can enter in fully to their experience and see that. Now, the court, this is going to be described here in these next verses. Verse 9, you shall make the court of the tabernacle on the south side of the, uh, of the court shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long uh, for one side. It's 20 pillars and their 20 bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets should be of silver. Likewise, its length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillars 20, uh, 20 and, it, and their bases 20 of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. For the breadth of the court on the west side, over there, there shall be hangings for 50 cubits with 10 pillars and 10 bases. The breadth of the court on the front side of the east, uh, to the east, shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits, with their three pillars and three bases. On the other side, the hanging shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen, 20 cubits long of blue, purple, and scarlet yarns, fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. And the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits 
and uh, the breadth 50, the height 5 cubits with hangings of fine twined linen and bases of bronze, and all the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, and all its pegs, and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. Okay. This establishes where the ground is to be holy and sacred. God is going to dwell within the camp. And remember, this is his dwelling. This is his tabernacle, his tent. All of Israel, as God laid them out all around, would be similarly camping in their tents. But this ground was set apart and holy. You could wander anywhere you wanted around the camp, but you could not just simply wander into this sacred area. There was only one gate to go through. And even there, you could approach only by the blood of the sacrifice. Okay? Now, the final couple verses, oil for the lamp, verse 20. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. This lampstand was given to be burning all night long, was to burn throughout the night. And I think it points us to this fact, as it says in Psalm 121, verse 4, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Every other tent would eventually have to blow out their candles because this oil was precious. You couldn't just burn it all night long while you slept. Everything else would go dark. But the Lord's house kept the light on. He was home. And he was not asleep. He was protecting and providing. Add to that the fact that the fire in the sky was lighting up the camp at night as well. It's awesome. The focal point at night for Israel as they were falling asleep was, there he is. There he is. Sleep in peace. A good reminder for those who struggle to fall asleep. Let your eyes fall upon the one who never sleeps. Who keeps you. So I was... My goodness, so many verses, so many things to consider. Tom did a great job of pointing us in a number of these things in some of these details in Hebrews class. I just want to draw out a few observations about who is God from this revelation, these verses. Every verse counts. Every verse matters. They are given to us for our benefit. And so, yeah, we have to work harder at some of these verses than others. But what do we learn about God from these verses? First, I believe that we can learn that God is a God of detail and creativity. Sometimes people, when they pray, they, they think that somehow God is just not concerned about the small things, the little things. He deals only in big stuff, and we really shouldn't bother Him if it's just a small thing. That's not true. These verses prove God is a God of every single little detail, every hook and clasp was described by God exactly as it was to be. He knows all the hairs on your head right now. He cares about the details of your life. 
And he cares that you care about the details of his commands. This is to be followed. I'm going to be really specific here. This is what I expect. This is what I call you to. And trust me and obey. In the details. Creativity. God is the creator. This is the God who created you. This is the God who created all that is. And he is the God who calls us in, in that echo as we carry his image to create. I love watching Gracie paint. She is a, a budding artist in our home. She loves art. And what I see in her echoes the reminder of the God who is. He is the ultimate painter. He paints with sunrise and sunset every day. This is the God that we serve. He loves to be creative. If you doubt that, then just stare in the mirror for a while, right? I mean, God is creative. No one is the same. Everyone uniquely woven together in the womb. His workmanship, Paul says. God is the God of detail and creativity. Secondly, God is the God of all glory and beauty. God delights in that which reflects who he is. And this sacred, set-apart uh, list of items that he has pulled from the people out of Egypt and, and lavished upon them, he's saying, this is not what is to be worshipped, but this points to you a little glimpse of how glorious I am. So don't come bow to the tent because it's made of gold. Don't bow to that. Worship the God who is the God of all glory, right? Who deserves the 24-karat gold box with the covenant and the lampstand of all one piece hammered out. He loves that which is beautiful. God defines beauty. He defines beauty. Oh, in a world so twisted and messed up like ours, we need to remember what is beauty? Dan did such a good job teaching this uh, when we did the attributes of God years ago. I loved your session on beauty. I learned so much in that of, of the God of all glory and beauty and then his definition that meets us in this world. Ask, what is beautiful? And then look at God. Consider. Spend time with the Lord and you will see what is beautiful and precious. Number three, God is infinitely holy and exalted. You cannot just kick a few rocks and stumble into this place. You will be struck dead if you enter lightly into his presence. Who are we to come into his abode, his tabernacle, his presence? This reminder was constantly before the people of Israel. It reminded them of their sin and God's total Purity and righteousness. But that's not all, friends. That's not all. Sometimes people look at the Old Testament and they just emphasize that and they look at the New Testament and emphasize the other. There is so much to be learned about who God is, especially when it comes to His love. You would say this, God is deeply relational. And what I don't mean by that is that God is needy in any way. He doesn't need our love. He doesn't crave our friendship as, as we would some, 
some, from some deficit, need to be satisfied or filled or, or, or loved. God just needs a little love in his cup. No. His joy in himself is such that he delights to share himself with his people. I want to dwell in their midst, not so I can be holy and, and sin, just send lightning bolts down on them and judge them and punish them, but so that I can express my holiness and my love. I'm, I'm here. Come. Come. The invitation. Now come, come with care. Come with fear and trembling. Don't come lightly. Don't be flippant. Oh, but come. Come. Come and worship the God who is. The holy, exalted, deeply loving and relational God. There would be many other things we could see about the Lord. I just picked those that just jumped out to me and, and, and landed in, in my heart. But the other thing that I just couldn't help but think this is, as, as I read through these things, I keep hearing the words of Christ in so many of these things. How is it that we see Jesus as we read these verses? Think of how the Apostle John put it in John 1.14. The Word, the Son, right, the Son, became flesh. That's the incarnation. That's the Christmas story. God came down and took on flesh. We know His name. His name is Jesus. He took on flesh and He dwelt, or literally, tabernacled. That's the word. He, he, he tabernacled among us. Just like we see in this, God moves to bring His presence among His people. Jesus has come to tabernacle among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You could say it this way. This tent, this tabernacle, was always about Jesus. Always. It was completely about Jesus. And their worship and their faith and all the sacrifices, everything that took place, anticipated the work of Christ. Otherwise, it was total waste and worthless. If their faith was not placed on the sacrifice who would come to fulfill this simple covering of sin, then what hope did they have? Mm. Look at this list. There's many more. We'll see in the weeks ahead as we study the priests that there's more, but here's a few. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. The one who willingly laid down His life on the bronze altar, on the cross, and shed His blood on our behalf. He is the mediator of a new covenant. He's the better Moses. He is, in fact, the prophet of all prophets. He's the bread of life. That bread that sat on the table, those 12 loaves representing each tribe, Jesus says, I'm the bread broken for you. I'm that bread. And then he turns and he sees this candelabra, the menorah, the lampstand as it shines, and he says, I'm the light of the world. That candlestick is me. It's always been me. It's all about me. He is our great high priest. 
He is the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's only one entrance to this house. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you only come to the Father through the blood of the Lamb who was slain when Jesus was on the cross. The very end, 3 p.m., He cried out with a loud voice and He yielded up His Spirit to the Father. What happened? A lot of things happened. The first that Matthew describes is this. That curtain that separated all of us from the very presence of God, the Holy of Holies. That curtain at the death of Jesus was torn from top to bottom in two. The way was opened up. What does that mean? God tore the veil through the shed blood of Jesus and the satisfactory atoning work paid in full. You can through Him now have access into the very Holy of Holies. He invites us to come. Come now through Christ. Be my people. Dine with me. Amazing. The last thing I just have to point out is this question. Where, where is the tabernacle now? Where is it now? There's speculation that uh, there are Jews who have for centuries hidden and kept and preserved and protected these special elements of the temple that someday, somehow, they're going to get the temple mount back and rebuild the temple and then begin this all over again with these actual items that they've somehow kept from, uh, from attack. and that, That's not what I'm talking about. I think that's misguided. That's shadow. We got the reality here. It's Christ. So where is the tabernacle? This is what Paul would say. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Believers, Christians, those who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he would say this, do you not know that you are God's tabernacle? You are the temple. You're the tent. And that God's Spirit dwells in you. That's incredible. We don't need a tabernacle anymore. We don't need a temple anymore. Because through Jesus and His resurrection and the sending of His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to come now dwelling in the people of God. So, you're the tent. Your heart is the Holy of Holies. That is the place where the Spirit of God dwells. And so the response this morning is just to simply ask this question. Who sits on the throne in your heart? Who rules your life? Who reigns in your heart? What is the great obsession of your life? Where does your worship go? To whom do you bow? You might be here this morning and you're saying, boy, I... If I'm honest, it's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. It's some other thing. And, and really, I mean, if it's not Jesus, then it's, it's got to be the person in the mirror. 
when you look that you see it, 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 it it's me if, if it's not jesus it's always me right i choose i rule my will be done that's the epitome of sin that's the lie of genesis 3 you can be like god you can rule your own life we are called to bow to submit to repent of our sins and to trust Christ and say, come, come and save me. Come rule on my heart. Reign in me, Lord. Be my king. Be my Lord. Believers this morning, those who have already decided this and placed their faith in Jesus and trusted him to be their savior and their Lord, don't push him off the seat. Don't push him off the throne and try to take it back. Let him rule. Let him reign. Keep that light on. Keep him on the throne of your heart. All the way to death. Trust in Christ alone. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way that your instructions here have taught us more about who you are but father we need to be reminded so often not only about who you are and all that you are for us your your glory and your greatness but how short we fall how prone we are to place ourselves on the throne in our holy of holies and to defend that place with all our might Lord, we know it's a dead-end road. We know that we cannot rule our own lives. It's just a mess. We're unable. And so we confess that sin before you, and we call you, O Lord, come and rule and reign in every heart here today. Be the Lord, the King of kings. Dwell, dwell in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.